Our sermon scripture this morning is Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. You may be seated. Let me guess with uh, another quick word of prayer. God, your word is a pure word, purer than silver that's been refined seven times. It is good for our souls. It grounds us. Lord, it's also authoritative. It commands our obedience. Word of God, yourself, Jesus Christ, please come to us by your spirit that we might hear you afresh. And that is what we need. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Have you ever played the game Telephone? I don't know if this is one of those classic kids' games that's played throughout the generations or if it was just a 90s thing. I tell you what, though, it, it, um, <laughs> if kids today are playing this game who have never seen a landline telephone, which is what the game is based off of, they're probably totally confused. But the idea of the game Telephone, if you're not familiar, is you get a bunch of kids together, the more the better, 20 kids, 30 kids, and you line them up in a row. And you whisper a phrase to the first kid, and then that kid turns to the kid behind them and whispers a phrase, and you only get one chance to whisper it, and then you whisper it again and again, and you see how the phrase has changed by the end. So you get the idea of a telephone, again, you know, when phones used to be connected by these things called cords. And, and, um, and inevitably what happens is one kid misses one word, and so then when they pass it along behind them, it's now that misunderstood word. And, and, so, and if you have enough kids, the way it ends can look nothing like how it started. So maybe it started with, hey, let's go to the movies today. That's the phrase. And then it finishes with, we're having hot dogs for lunch. And you're like, that doesn't make, that, they're not even similar sounding. And there's always that one kid who just says whatever he wants. And you know, like, you know who he is. Now using that illustration of telephone, likewise, there have been 2,000 years since metaphorically Jesus spoke this phrase of the church. 2,000 years of generations handing on the traditions of, of what church looks like, their understanding of what the church looks like, to generation after generation. And just like with the game of telephone, sometimes what comes out on the other end does not look a whole lot like what was first spoken into that line. When you survey 21st century American Christianity, you'd be forgiven for asking the question, what exactly is the church? Is it a rock concert? Is it a community events venue? Just does events for the community. Is it a college lecture? Unless you hear a long talk that's very intellectually stimulating. Is it a dating program? Have you ever been to a young and singles group at church? It's like, oh yeah, we're here for Bible study. No, we're here to meet a spouse. I mean, it's obvious, right? So is this a dating program? Is church primarily a place you can find friends with similar values? Is it just a place 
You bring your kids to you to instill good morals. But the great thing is just with like the telephone game, like we can know what the phrase was that began it, and so we can see how it's changed. So similarly, we know how the church began. And we can look and see what Jesus' original desire for the church was because it's revealed to us in Scripture. And there's probably no more beautiful picture of what that church looked like than the passage that we're looking at this morning in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. And this gives us an opportunity to compare and contrast and to see if there's ways in which we've missed it, we can repent and turn back to the Lord and seek his face. From a kind of 30,000-foot perspective, Acts chapter 2 is a monumental chapter in the Bible. I would argue that outside of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ, Acts 2 is the most theologically important chapter in the entire New Testament. You have the fulfillment of the promise of the Father that he would send his spirit on all flesh. You have that happening. You have 3,000 people confessing belief in Jesus Christ, being baptized, and what does it all lead to? It leads to the church. We have the birth of the church. In these last few verses of chapter two, it tells us what this church looked like. And it's obviously not intended to be some kind of exhaustive list of everything the church is and does, but it, it gives us a beautiful, a compelling, and a very succinct image of what the very first church looked like. And so for our outline this morning, as we look at the birth of the church, I'm drawing out three characteristics that I think are, are still instructive for us. And the first characteristic is that the church is a spiritual community. Second, the church is an ordered community. And third, the church is a generous community. So first point, the church is a spiritual community. Now I'm going to be actually using all of chapter 2 for this. Rest assured, I'm not going to read all of chapter 2. But when you look at the whole of chapter 2, this is my simple explanation for this first point. When I say the church is a spiritual community, what I mean is that the church is a product of the Holy Spirit. When the Spirit is poured out and does His work, he produces the church. And likewise, the Holy Spirit is the one who sustains the church, who is at work in the church. So again, a big, re, a big uh, sorry, a recap of chapter two. The big tension that we've seen so far in Acts is this promise of the Father. Peter talks to Jesus in chapter one. He's still very concerned about the political well-being of Israel. And he says, are, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel this time? And Jesus says, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do one better. I'm going to send the promise of the Father. And he's going to be poured out on all flesh. And he's going to fill you and empower you for the mission I have for you. And then chapter 2 opens with a bang, because that's exactly what happens. And as the Spirit is poured out, it creates such a commotion that a crowd of, of Jews who are in Jerusalem celebrating the Pentecost feast, they gather around, and Peter is able to stand up and preach the first gospel message we have record of. And he tells them, look, the Spirit being poured out, this is evidence that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the one whom you crucified. And because that Messiah is here now, there's salvation in his name. Turn to him and be saved. And again, as we mentioned, 3,000 people turn to Christ or baptized, and boom, the church is born. Before this, there's no church. After this, there's a church. We see this in just the, the use of the word church in the New Testament. Not to get really nerdy on you here for a second, but the Greek word for church is ecclesia. And up to this point, it's used, so all four gospels, which makes up like a quarter of the New Testament, you see it twice, the, the word church, ecclesia. It's in Matthew. 
In Acts alone, that word for church is used 23 times. Because when the Spirit is poured out, the church is born. Again, the church is a spiritual community. The birth of the church is the work of the Holy Spirit being poured out in this new way that's made possible because Jesus Christ has died for sinners and risen from the grave. And what we're looking at, so when we look at this incredible description in verses 42 to 47, in all its beauty and all that makes it so compelling, we have to realize this is the work of the Spirit, having been poured out on this group of Christians. Now, when I say the church is a spiritual community, we can understand that intellectually, but it's kind of abstract. So how can I flesh that out a little bit? What does it actually mean when the rubber hits the road that we're a spiritual community? And, And I thought it might be illuminating to compare and contrast New Testament revival, this is the first revival in the history of the New Testament, with Old Testament revivals. Because in the Old Testament, there were times when God would do a work. Uh, When you look at the story of Ezra and Nehemiah with Israel coming home from the exile, if you look at Moses at Mount Sinai, if you look at various good kings throughout Israel's history who would lead the people back towards faithfulness to Yahweh, okay, how does that revival, how is that different than, than what we experience as a church? In other words, what is it, What is different about the fact that we are a spiritual community, a product of the Holy Spirit? And the difference, I think, that we see is in the Old Testament, revivals were more revivals of ritual. They're about restoring the right forms of worship, so the sacrifices, the feasts, temple worship, and they were less transformative at a heart level. Whereas revival in the New Testament, because the Spirit has been poured out in each individual, it's a heart-level revival. It's not just affecting our behavior, but it's affecting our hearts. And so we see this, for example, in the Old Testament, revivals are very much leader-driven, which which again makes sense of how the Spirit operated in the Old Testament. The Spirit was poured out on Moses, and so Moses led the revival on Mount Sinai. The Spirit's poured out on prophets, so they would lead various revivals. But, But if you remember, when we looked at the story of Mount Sinai, when God descends in all his holiness on the mountain and there's thunder and lightning and it's terrifying and the people of Israel fall down on their faces in terror and awe of God Almighty and then 40 days later they're worshiping an idol. What seems to have been the case that this was very much a leader-led thing but it was a mile wide and an inch deep. It was probably a very authentic impression, the holiness of God, but it didn't last And so when you're reading the history of Israel and you write, you have like a really good king like Josiah who's leading the people back to faithfulness to Yahweh and then he dies and five years later, like Israel's offering their firstborn to Molech. Like, how does that happen? Well, again, these revivals in the Old Testament, they were ritual revivals that went a mile wide but only an inch deep. In contrast, the picture here in Acts 2, yes, the the apostles are teaching, but this this is a movement from the bottom up. It's a groundswell of people not just reforming how they do church together, but they're in their homes, fellowshipping and praising God. They're giving up their finances. All of their life is being wrapped up in this. It's an all-of-life, heart-level revival rather than just a ritual revival. And this is exactly what God promised he would do in Jeremiah 31, 33. He said, when the Spirit descends, I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. When we read verses 42 to 47, what we're seeing is the work of the Spirit. The same Spirit that dwells among us 
that can do the same work among us. So in summary, the Holy Spirit has been poured out on Pentecost, and what the Spirit does is then draw together people to become a church who are a spiritual community. And so what that means is because the church is a spiritual community, the work of the Spirit is basic and necessary to everything the church does. We are, a spirit, we are a product of the Spirit working. And so everything we do is through the Spirit, by the Spirit. He's necessary and basic to everything we do. You gotta ask, what, you know, when you read these verses, it's just like, what leads to this kind of beautiful, intense, transformative community? Because whatever they did, like, we wanna do that. What book did they read? What program did they implement? What conference did they attend? Like, sign me up. What did they do? They got together and they prayed and the Spirit descended. Boom. Because the church is a work of the Spirit. And I'll tell you what, if the Spirit is working, Satan himself can oppose it with all his might and he won't be able to do a thing. On the flip side, if the Spirit is absent, it doesn't matter how impressive the church looks, it's a house of cards and it's going to collapse. What leads to this kind of community as we're reading this? It's only the Spirit. And, and if that's the case, this is why we have to be a prayerful church. This is why every church must seek to be a church with a genuine culture of prayer, right? We want to be a community like what we've read here, what we're going to look at more fully. We want to be that kind of community. Well, then let's pray, because only the Spirit can do that among us. If we want to see our friends come to Jesus, if we want to see our neighbors, if we want to see members in this neighborhood that God and his providence have put us in, come to Jesus, that's the work of the Spirit. We have to pray for that. I'm going to share later a way that we can put that into practice. But first point, the church is a spiritual community. The Spirit descends and he produces the church. Every church is a result of the work of the Spirit. The second characteristic that we see of this fledgling church, though, is that the church is an ordered community. Look at verses 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. The life of the Spirit led to a heart-level revival, not just a ritual revival, but that didn't mean that the church just did whatever felt right, whatever came naturally, quote Annie Oakley from Annie Get Your Gun. And it's certainly a very authentic expression of the Spirit, and so there are organic elements in this picture of the early church, and that appeals to our very postmodern sensitivities, but they weren't just making it up. They were actually doing things together. There was an order, a structure to this church, even at this very early time, such that Luke can actually summarize them in four different things. You know, it seems like every five years, there's someone writing a book about, hey, I'm gonna reinvent the church, and people get so excited, and they're like, oh, finally, church is gonna stop being boring. And truthfully, every generation has to learn to speak the gospel in their own language. Um, we, when, you know, when the Great Awakenings happened, they produced with them a host of new hymns out of the overflow of the heart of people who've encountered the grace of God for themselves, not just their parents' faith, but now their faith. And yes, it leads us to, to speak the gospel in our own language, but we don't throw out everything that's come before. There are certain things that Christians have always done together. 
And we see that all the way from the beginning, which is why they're instructive for us. And Luke lists four of these central activities that were central for the church then, and they remain central for us now. And the first activity he lists is that they were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. It's a pretty clear statement. Not sure I can add a lot to that. They were a learning community. They devoted themselves to learning from the apostles. Now we have to ask, okay, what was the apostles' teaching? Well, that's what Jesus had been teaching the apostles for his whole earthly ministry. And most specifically, it says that, again, after his resurrection, before his ascension, he spent 40 days teaching on the kingdom of God. And this is what the apostles are then teaching the early church. But more fundamentally, what is this? Well, this, this is what would eventually become the New Testament. Um, Paul, writing many decades later in Ephesians 2.20, would describe the church this way. He says, together we are his house, and this house, this church, is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And what Paul's doing there is he's using the apostles as shorthand for the New Testament, and the prophets as shorthand for the Old Testament. Because the teaching of the apostles is what eventually they put into the gospels and into the letters they wrote. In other words, a church from the beginning has devoted itself to God's word, to the scriptures. To understanding the scriptures, to studying the scriptures. And this is why every Sunday, we have a Bible-centered sermon. Every Sunday. We're gonna devote a a lion's share of our service to preaching this word. Again, for the past 30 years, there's been a number of Christians, a number of non-Christians, who've argued the sermon is an outdated form of communication, like this kind of monologue. People don't have attention spans for that. We gotta make this like participatory in somehow, or, or at least use like visual graphics to spice it up. So boring, this listening. It's just not true. So Christianity Today produced a podcast called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. It had over two and a half million downloads. Those episodes were at least an hour of pop. And the last episode was over two and a half hours. And I tell you what, your boy, I listened to the whole thing, okay? It's just not true that the spoken word is somehow, oh, we can't only handle. It's just not true. Now, there are boring sermons. And, and, and shame on the preacher. But the fact that somehow the spoken word is an outdated mode of communication is just, just nonsense. We've got to call it out for what it is. But still, even when preachers are doing their best, let's be honest, sometimes week after week after week, it can begin to feel a little routine. Why do we do it? We do it because it's what Christians have always done. It's what Jesus desired for us from the beginning. It's what we see in this passage. And the reason why it's what we've always done is because in the scriptures, we have a word that's true. You know, we live in the information age where we are bombarded by words, and some of them are true, and some of them are false, and most of them are some kind of mixture in between. But in the word of God, we have something that's true. Absolutely true. Something that's authoritative, that doesn't just come to us to interest us, but it calls for our allegiance and our obedience, and it's something that gives us life if we will walk in its ways. And God, in his great majestic, ironic sovereignty and in the ethic of the kingdom chose that he would reveal himself through a book and a book that was preached by very ordinary people preaching good and not so good sermons. That's how God had chosen to reveal himself. 
So the first thing they devoted themselves to was the apostles' teaching. The second thing, the second structure of this church is that they devoted themselves to the fellowship. You could put in their close relationships with one another. Deep, life-giving, being known and knowing. You know, know, again, I, I believe wholeheartedly in the centrality of preaching, but the church is not a preaching platform. It's not something we come to and you know, hear an interesting sermon, talk to no one, and then go home. If we're doing that, we're missing it. You know, it's, it's, it's a place of fellowship. Fellowship is built into, structured into what the church has always done from the beginning. When I first came to Vine Street, I was not sold on our fellowship time. I know, gasp. Don't throw me out. I just had never experienced something like that before. Like, you know, the churches I went to, like 15 seconds, it's like too long. End it. This is awkward. Um, and, I, and, and it seemed to kind of break the flow of the worship service and like, you know. But over time, and as I read passages like this, I began to realize, no. Like fellowship is not a distraction from our individualistic worship of God. It's actually part of our worship. It's built into the structure of the church. And I tell you what, you know, sometimes preaching can get kind of performative from both ends. And, and you know, it is what it is. What better way to break a performative, production-oriented ethos of a church than have eight minutes of unstructured fellowship? Anything could happen. We we can't control it when you do that. You know, it's just like, wait, that's great. Praise God. We need that. So they they devoted themselves to the fellowship as well. So again, this is a structured community. There's teaching of, of scripture. They're devoting themselves to the fellowship. Thirdly, they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. There's some contention to whether this refers to just eating meals together or refers to the Lord's Supper. I tend to think it's probably the Lord's Supper, and that's for a couple of reasons. First, it's, the context here seems pretty clearly to be a corporate context, the context of the gathered church. Um, and so, you know, that would make sense that it would be the Lord's Supper in that context. Second, it says the breaking of bread. In verse 46, it'll just mention breaking of bread. They were breaking bread in their homes. But here he says they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread, which seems to suggest this is not just eating meals together. And then third, what we, you know, we see later in the New Testament, it seems like initially Christians would celebrate the Lord's Supper in a meal. And so it's likely a meal that they're celebrating together, which also included the Lord's Supper. And it makes total sense because in Luke 22, when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, he said, do this in remembrance of me. And so Christians have done that from the beginning. Some do it every week, some do it every month, some do it once a year. It, I mean, when is, there's room for disagreement, but this is something that Christians have done from the beginning. Devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. And lastly, fourthly, they devoted themselves to the prayers. And again, I, I, you know, obviously we're called to have a private prayer life, but I think this is pretty clearly referring to the prayers of the church, gathered prayer meetings. And this is why I've said before, and I'll say it again, and I'll say it again, and I'll say it again until you're like, Mike, be quiet, I don't want to hear anymore. The most important thing we do is when we gather for worship. If we didn't gather, there would be no church. The second most important thing we do as a church is when we gather for prayer. It's more important than our small groups. It's more important than discipleship groups. It's more important than Sunday school. It's more important than our member meetings or our deacon meetings. It's even more important than our evangelism. Because we are a spiritual community, we're a work of the Spirit. And how does the Spirit work? He works through our prayers. 
Prayer is what avails us of the Spirit's power to walk closely with Jesus in genuine intimacy. The Spirit, you know, the prayers that produces within us the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Prayer is what empowers us for our witness. If we want to see the Spirit work among us in the way that we see it in the New Testament in Acts 2, 42 to 47, then we've got to pray together. And that's why, beginning second Saturday of February, for February and March, we're going to have a very informal prayer meeting every Saturday at 9 a.m. here in the sanctuary. It's, it's going to be informal. It's not going to be me coming with a structure. This is what we're praying for. We're just going to gather whoever wants to come, Saturday at 9 a.m., second Sunday of February, and we're going to seek God's face together. Because that's what we see in Acts. All this happens because the Christians got together and prayed, and then the Spirit worked. And if we want to see the Spirit work in our midst, we've got to do the same thing. And secondly, it's going to be a way to prepare for our summer outreach. Again, we, we haven't been walking in the neighborhood because when it's 40 degrees, no one wants to be outside. And if they are outside, they don't want to stop and talk to you. But starting in April, we're going to start again our monthly, our monthly uh, neighborhood walks. And so we want to baptize those times in prayer. So if you're free Saturday mornings at 9 a.m., again, starting the second Saturday of February, we're going to do that in February and March, seeking the Lord's face together. Because this is what the first Christians did, and this is the example the Spirit has given to us. So first, the church is a spiritual community. It's a, it's a product of the work of the Spirit. Second, the church was an ordered community. There were always things that they did, and they've done those throughout the centuries. But the third characteristic we see of the church is that the church is a generous community. Let's look at verses 43 to 47. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. One of the most striking characteristics of this church is how generous they were. It says they, had, they held all things in common. People were selling possessions to provide for needs in the church. They were meeting in each other's homes, sharing their food and their resources with, with one another. It was just this incredibly generous community. And whenever you read this, you get that phrase, that held all things in common, and you're just like, what does that mean? You know, there were, there's been entire monastic communities that were birthed out of that verse. It seems like the early church was a socialist community. If that's the case, should we be a socialist community? Should we all sell our private property and give it to the church? Yeah, there's benefits to that. It's the pastor. Maybe we're supposed to be socialists. I don't know. I'll have to let you decide that on your own. But if we're going to argue it from Scripture, I don't think we can use this passage because I don't think the early church was actually a socialist community, although they were prophetic in their own way. And the reason I don't, think, I don't think it says when they held all things in common, it literally means there was no private property. The reason I think that is because they have private property. It says they were selling their possessions. It's an ongoing activity. The image is not, well, they became Christians, everyone sold everything they had, and they were this kind of socialist commune. No, it's, it's, it's 
as need arose, people would sell stuff and give it to the church, which meant they still had private things to sell. Further, in verse 46, it says they're meeting in their homes. And some people still owned homes. And then in chapter 5, you get to Ananias and Sapphira, who sell property. I mean, they're members of the community, and they sell property, and then pretend to give it all to the church, and they lie about it, and it ends badly for them. But the point is that they still had property. So whatever this means, it can't literally mean they held all things in common, because people still have possessions. What does that mean? And this is the best guess I can make of it, is that it's something very similar to what we say when we have someone staying with us, and we say, look, make yourself at home. My house is your house. Mikase sukasa. Now, do we mean like, hey, so if you don't like the layout, knock down a wall, you know, you can sell our front. No, it doesn't mean we're lying. And I said, my house is your house, but I am making a a genuine statement of radical generosity that, hey, I really want you to make yourself at home and avail yourself of what I have as if it was your own, but no, my house is not your house. Your name is not written on my deed. I think that's what, I think that's what it meant. That the church, there's such a radical unity and generosity that although people still had their own possessions, they held it lightly to the extent that any resources of any one person were available to anyone within the community who had need. It was as if they held all things in common. And here's the thing is, again, so this church may not have been a socialist community, but they were still radically and even prophetically generous in how they used their financial resources. They were truly walking in the footsteps of their Lord Jesus Christ, who in Luke chapter 9, verses 23 to 24 said this, Jesus said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would lose his life, sorry, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And of course, when Jesus says whoever loses his life, he's not talking about suicide. He's talking about full surrender of everything you have. If you give up what you have to Christ, you'll find what true life is. And that's what we see the followers of Jesus doing. Again, this is more evidence of the fact that this revival was not just a revival in behavior, but it was a heart-level revival because it affected how people spent their money. I don't want to get too controversial here, but I think in some ways the depth of a revival is measured in how it affects our bank accounts. And the reason for that is that money makes promises. It makes promises to us. It makes promises of of control. If you have enough money, you can control how your life will look. You can control where you'll live. You can control how you'll interact with people. It gives promises of safety. You'll never be homeless You'll never not be able to get the medical care you need. It gives promises of comfort, of course. You have nice things. And in a world that is marked by a whole lot of uncertainty, control, safety, and comfort resonate deeply in the human soul. And that's why money and greed have always been one of the central idols of the human heart and why Jesus reserved some of his strongest language for greed and for the use of money. And here's the thing, money makes promises, give yourself to me, and I'll give you control and safety and comfort, and it delivers. If you devote yourself to money, you will gain control and safety and comfort, but there's worms in the goods. It's rotten at the end. Uh, my, my grandparents, 
were very wealthy. And when they retired, they retired in this posh, upscale, private neighborhood, beachfront property in Long Island, to give you an idea. It's called Paradise Point. My grandpa used to joke that it should have been called Litigation Point because everyone just sat around suing each other. There's a bunch of retired, very wealthy people who had nothing better to do, and they hated each other, and so they'd sue each other, including my grandpa. His neighbor built a deck out that instructed his view of the bay, and he sued him and won and got the guy to tear it down. The fact of the matter is you spend 70 years pursuing money, you can achieve a whole lot of comfort, a whole lot of control, and a whole lot of safety. But it also produces some of the nastiest, pettiest, most self-centered people in the world. The goods are rotten. Jesus also makes promises. He said, come to me and I'll give you rest in your souls. Something that no amount of money can give. He said, I've come that they might have life abundant, a life full of flourishing. And that's exactly what we see in this community. Again, these people are impoverishing themselves. I mean, it says they're selling possessions. You know, this may have been like what they had to live on. Maybe they're selling their retirement. We don't know. They're giving up their control, their safety, and their comfort. And what do they look like? Verse 46, and day by day, attending the temple, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. I mean, it was the living embodiment of uh, Psalm 4-7. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and their wine abound. Jesus makes promises too. And we see the outcome of walking by those promises in this passage. Now you may be asking me, okay, Mike, so you know, what are you saying? I need to sell all my possessions? or How much do I need to give away? Is there a percentage? Is there a total amount? Can I buy these things? And, I mean, I have opinions on all these things, but it's just, it's just my opinion. Because the Bible doesn't tell us. All I can do is preach with utmost conviction that Jesus has told us it's more blessed to give than to receive. And I've seen that in my life. And Acts 2 is a powerful image of that truth. So that's the third characteristic of the church. They were a generous community. This is the church. And in conclusion, again, going back to that telephone illustration, when Jesus, you know, to use the illustration, when he, when he spoke the phrase of the church, into that long line. This is, this is what it was. It was a, a spirit-created, spirit-infused community of people who gathered under the authority of the scriptures, who lived life in authentic, sacrificial, generous, in each other's businesses type of community, who shared in the ordinances of the church and communion and baptism, and who prayed together and again, there's been many times when what's come out at the other end of that long line of telephone has looked not a whole lot like that, but the beauty is we have what, it, we have what Jesus desired. How do, we, how do we conform to this image? How do we look more like Acts 2, 42 to 47? And again, it's pretty simple. It's a work of the Spirit. Only the Spirit can do it. And so we pray. We pray throughout our week. And I know many of you pray for this church Pray for this. Pray that the Spirit will be poured out and do what only the Spirit can do in our lives. But it's also when we gather to pray. 
If we want to recover the New Testament church in all its messy beauty, well, then we've got to pray for that together. And then watch out, because that's the kind of prayer that God loves to answer. Let's, let's pray. Jesus, we, um, we ask that you will make us like those early Christians. May your spirit be poured out in our midst to turn our hearts towards you in new and fresh ways, to build within us a fellowship that is genuine and life-giving and sacrificial, to make us generous in a generosity that comes from the depth of our hearts, to make us effective in our witness. Oh, Spirit, you alone can do this work, and we beg you that you will do it. Not for our glory, not for our benefit, but for Christ and his kingdom. It is that, that reality that we long for, that we work for, that we labor for. And all God's people said, amen.